Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Forum's Matzav podcast, the podcast that brings you all the latest updates and analysis on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I'm Noah Schusterman, the Communications and Research Fellow. And I'm Adam Bassiano, Coordinator of Strategic Initiatives and Director of IPF Atid. Every month with our International Young Professionals Network, we identify a relevant topic and action item to focus in-depth on, and with this month's anniversary of both the Balfour Declaration and the UN Partition Plan, we chose to focus on the evolution of international mediation as it relates to the Israel-Palestine conflict. As such, we're very excited to dedicate this Matzav podcast to our November initiative. 100 years ago, on November 2, 1917, Lord Arthur James Balfour, the British-born secretary, sent Lord Walter Rothschild, a Zionist activist, a letter stating His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. This letter was a watershed moment for the Zionist movement in the Jewish settlement in Palestine, and to this day considered the moment the international community acknowledged this Jewish claim for the territory of mandatory Palestine, or at least parts of it, giving merit to the later establishment of Israel. We're happy to welcome to the conversation Mr. Michael Davies. Michael is a high school history teacher in the UK who engages with innovative teaching methods and is working on an educational app that shows students both the Israeli and Palestinian narrative of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict on a project called Parallel Histories. For the Balfour Declaration's 100-year anniversary, he launched an international student film competition where he asks each participant to answer the question, should Britain be praised or blamed for the Balfour Declaration, a topic that often underlines the public discourse on the Declaration and what we hope to get into on our conversation today. Hi, Michael. Hi, Adam. Hi, Noah. Thanks for joining us. Before we start talking about the political issues of the Declaration, can you first tell us a bit about what brought a non-Jewish British teacher with no apparent affiliation for one side or the other to open up this can of worms called the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Well, uh, I'm a history teacher, and I want to bring the subject alive. And the places to do that are often in the conflict areas where the history is being lived and breathed. Uh, In the past, we've taken groups to Dublin and then up to Belfast every year, and the students get to talk to these ex-IRA and ex-UVF or um, UDA prisoners. Uh, And, you know, these guys are steeped in, in, in 800 years' history of conflict. Now, as individuals, they're very invariably agreeable, they're sincere, and yet, you know, on both sides, they've served many years in prison for very serious acts of violence, which... You know, in some cases, they continue to justify. So the mm-hmm. students comprehend, they apprehend all of this, and it's it's sort of mind-blowing, and it really forces them to think things through for themselves. So, you know, having seen the power of these trips, I thought I'd take a trip to Israel and the West Bank, which is, which is like Northern Ireland except squared or possibly cubed. And you can just imagine what it, you know, sort of Yad Vashem one day and the Neset and then, you know, two days later playing soccer in a Palestinian refugee camp. And, and you know, for some of these students, it was a really transformative life experience. So, you know, what I'm trying to do with Parallel Histories is to get that experience and kind of put it into a, well, not into a bottle, but into an interactive video. But why Israel-Palestine? Okay, you started from uh, Northern Ireland, but still Israel-Palestine is a bit far away, isn't it? Uh, yes, but, uh, I, I mean, Jerusalem, you know, there's a long history of uh, 
British people being interested in uh, what we, you know, what we call the Holy Land from, well, from Oliver Cromwell onwards, uh, and uh, there's the British mandate that draws us uh, nearer to it. And uh, in my classroom, I've got a, a 13th century map of uh, of the world uh, um, drawn by monks. Uh, in uh, Gloucester, uh, Gloucester Abbey, and it shows Jerusalem as the centre of the world. So, in a way, it's not, you know, Jerusalem is not really culturally or historically peripheral. In a way, perhaps it's Britain which has been peripheral, and and Jerusalem which has been at the centre of the world. So, what is Parallel Narratives? Um, can you maybe tell us a bit about the initiative and how do you attempt to show both narratives? at the same time, and can that be done without any kind of bias? Well, uh, I'll, um, I'll deal with the what is parallel narratives uh, question first, because that's the easier one, then I'll come on to the harder question. Uh, it's, uh, it's an interactive video. It's using this amazing new software, which is, uh, this is a Manhattan-based company. It's downtown Manhattan. It's called TouchCast. They support what I'm doing, and they let me have the software free. So thank you very much, TouchCast. And it's basically the software they've got is like a video wrapper, which contains the internet. So if you went on to, say, one of the programs on the history of the 1929 riots, uh, the user would get a minute of general introduction and then a choice of two narratives, a Jewish narrative, and, a, and an Arab narrative, but having picked one of those and sort of got into in, into the portal, which tells the story from that perspective, they're then constantly encouraged all the way through to take a look over the fence at the other version. And uh, you know, we're not asking people to empathise. You know, we're not sort of saying you know feel feel somebody else's pain. We're simply asking them to be aware and have an understanding of what the other narrative is. Um, now the second part of your question, Noah, was about is it is it sort of is it possible to do sort of equally? In a way that you know I can't judge that. I can only judge the reaction to it. And earlier this year, Parallel Histories was written up favourably in both the Jewish Chronicle and the Arab Weekly. Neither of which are newspapers who are shy on uh, calling out um, uh, people who they think are biased against their against their viewpoint. And, you know, if that's not uh, unique to have those, uh, those two newspapers endorsing the same educational initiative around the Palestinian-Israeli in Broglio, if that's not unusual, if it's not unique, it's certainly unusual. And what I would take, take from that is that people who are partisans feel that we have been fair and sympathetic to their view. Uh, and I, just to finish on finish that part of the question, one learning for me is that what makes people distressed, what makes them angry, is when they feel their story is being suppressed or denied. And actually, they are much less worried about having the other story out there as long as theirs is too. You bring up an interesting point, and um, I'm wondering if there was a decision, a conscious decision made um, to either include or not include the Hussein McMahon correspondences. Um, and obviously, when the Jewish community and folks here in the Jewish community speak about the Balfour Declaration, at times these important letters sent during World War I are omitted from the Jewish narrative. 
I'm wondering if you can speak towards that and how, um, if at all, it played a part in the formulation of this project. Uh, well, yes, it does. And I'd also add in there the Sykes-Picot yes. uh, agreement, which is probably of those three agreements, it's the Sykes-Picot agreement, which at the time is the one that uh, uh, we would kind of have the most meat and heft behind it, because uh, one, you know, one agreement's with the Jews who who are sort of spread around. Uh, and one agreement is with the, is with the uh, Hus- you know, Husseini family, but the other agreement is actually with a major imperial power, the French. Uh, so that's probably the one that, uh, in a way, has most, most sort of historical heft to it. And uh, in terms of the way um, we deal with it in the parallel history, in parallel histories, uh, we, we actually have all three of those documents embedded uh, in the in the videos, and uh, you'll see if you were to you know if you were to go through them that in the uh, Jewish narrative they're mentioned, but you know most of the emphasis is on Balfour. But in the uh, in the Arab narrative, uh, there's much more discussion of the, the inherent contradictions and uh, this you know being evidence of imperial double dealing. So right now, 100 years later, um, can you pinpoint where the British public stands in regards to these uh, issues and specifically to the Uh, Balfour Declaration? In a cloud of ignorance, I would imagine. uh, It's, uh, uh, I mean, sadly, uh, it's not something that we uh, teach very much about. I mean, and I'd include in that not just Balfour, but also Sykes-Picot and, um, as Adam mentioned, uh, the you know Mahan and Husseini letters, and and the reason for that is I think we're like every country is that when it comes to setting curricula, we we like to focus on the sunny uplands uh, and the, you know on the stuff that makes us feel a little bit pleased to be who we are. And uh, so, for instance, you know there's a lot more in the British history curriculum about the acquisition of empire than there is about us losing it and how we lost it although actually I think the sort of you know the story of Britain losing its empire is is kind of more relevant to us right now and and, uh, possibly more interesting Mm -hmm. so uh, sadly I wouldn't say that the British public has a uh, no uh, I wouldn't say I think it would be overclaiming to say that the British public has a viewpoint on it this leads us to our next um, topic, um, which is basically the Balfour Declaration and the film competition that you initiated. What gave you the idea to create this competition and to actually engage, again, this very controversial topic with high school students? Um, and what sort of reactions did you receive, both from the students but also from their parents, who I'm guessing not all of them yeah. were very content it's uh, well. The timing is is right because it's a centenary, and uh, then in terms of the controversy element, I slightly um, I slightly deflected that by instead of asking a simple question, instead of making the film competition competition just a respond to a simple question, Balfour, good or bad, I turned the question into should Britain be praised or blamed for the Balfour Declaration. And I thought if we did that, we'd actually get a slightly more nuanced uh, and uh, um, interesting set of responses. Uh, And it also, it then takes out any... uh, Well, you don't get this sort of straightforward, uh, you know, black-white 
uh, uh, dichotomy. You're either one thing or the other, because we've actually put the British in there, and the British, you know, the the British can uh, uh, the British couldn't be blamed for the Balfour Declaration, uh, or not given credit for the Balfour Declaration, even if one were to argue that the Balfour Declaration was a good thing, because you could then question. Uh, you could then question the motives with which they approached it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in terms of um, responses to this, uh, the uh, no complaint so far, uh, which is which is always a good thing. I think because people recognise a little bit the same with the the programmes that are already out there and in use, is that every you know uh, both sides are 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 listened to and and both sides narratives are prevent are presented uh, with goodwill and with sympathy mm-hmm. i'm wondering what the reaction has been not so much from proposed participants in the competition but from other advocacy groups or even perhaps ministers of parliament it, it, i've had um i've got some uh, some palestinian students are um, are working on this uh, and uh, and Najjar and uh, so uh, they see this as in terms of other sort of you know they see this as an opportunity to uh, practice their English uh, win some money and uh, get their viewpoint heard so you know why, why wouldn't you um, from uh, from um, there are a couple of education, uh, Jewish educational charities down uh, in London uh, who picked this up as well. And what intrigued me about that is that uh, you know is how much they've embraced it, uh, because I think what they they recognise um, that, uh, and, and their role is to provide Jewish schools with educational materials. That um, it's just good to have a range of, of and you know, have a range of materials and have a range of challenging materials because that's the only way that you'll you'll teach people how to think. And you can always justify it on the basis, you know, that John Stuart Mill uh, quotation where you know John Stuart Mill says, "If you don't know anything of your opponent's argument, then you know very little of your own either." Uh, so there are all sorts of ways that you can. Uh, persuade people uh, that this is a good thing to do and and so far you know as I mentioned with the newspaper coverage I've had good buy-in from I don't like keep on saying the word both sides because every time you say it it sort of polarizes people polarizes you know people all the time it's just sort of annoying you know it's just being a not must be being it's annoying being labeled all the time isn't it but I'm just for a shorthand I would just say that you know I've had a good reception from both sides So I'm just wondering who won is there a winner I mean so far is it declared <laughs> oh my goodness uh, who, who uh, I don't think there are any winners anywhere at the moment do you and um, uh, I actually haven't ju- you know we haven't finished I haven't got all of the com- competition entries in but um, I, when I when we do get the you know the best few then uh, now I'll, I'll send you links to them and you can have a look at them yourself and maybe you Maybe, um, yeah, maybe, maybe you could put them up on your website or something if you're interested. 
maybe they can persuade me if uh, if the UK was right or, or wrong about the Balfour Declaration, or is it to blame or praise for it? It's really should Balfour should we be, should Britain be blamed or praised because. Uh, you know, it's that moral, it's that philosophical question. If you do a uh, a um, a deed which produces good, but you do it for bad motives, uh, should you be praised for that? Uh, but you might then argue that the motives were good. But I certainly the motives are extremely complicated. I mean, any analysis of, uh, and I don't want to sort of go into sort of history history teacher mode too much here. But any analysis of. Uh, of the motives of Balfour are are, um, are so multifarious as to, as to lead you to draw the single conclusion, which is that when when a man's motives are written down as you know when he's given sort of seven or eight separate motives for doing something, that's a clear that's a clear uh, uh, proof that that we actually don't know why he did it. I, I suspect he did it more in a you know, just more as a, as, as a very small thing whilst Britain wrestled with its, you know, with its existential problem in 1917 of, you know, was it going to survive the First World War? Uh, a, you know, a war that's already killed far more than we ever killed in the Second World War in terms of as far as, you know, so for Britain, that's the big war. And that actually, um, they, you know, they, Balfour would, uh, and Lloyd George would try almost anything in order to uh, keep the Amer- you know keep the uh, well bring yeah keep the Russians in the war and and uh, accelerate the deployment of American troops America had entered the war but but um, its troops weren't yet over on the Western Front so you know this was just uh, um, a gesture which kind of might have worked and it was certainly worthwhile making uh, because nobody was thinking further than 1918. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Well, so you've obviously uh, spent uh, an hour or two reading through this history, it seems apparent to us. <laughs> I, hope, I hope so, because I teach it. <laughs> <laughs> so every day. I hope, your, I hope your teachers spent more than an hour or two uh, re- reading, reading through the stuff before they, uh, before, they, uh, before they taught it to you. Well, I'm not so sure. <laughs> not always, at least. <laughs> not always. Well, so what I think is would be... Perhaps most interesting to me is the question of has your perspective on this specific question shifted over time as you continue to study it and continue to hear new perspectives on it? Has your opinion both on the Balfour Declaration but but wider than that on simply international mediation in when it comes to the Israel-Palestine conflict, has that shifted at all as a result of the, this project? Yeah, to, no, that's a very interesting question. I, I'll, I'll answer it in two ways. Uh, one is the, this reflection that it's of, you know, the law of unintended consequences and how the great men bestow things and then, uh, you know, for, for generations afterwards, it, 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 it changes things. And, and I, my, my father was uh, when he did national service after the Second World War. He was posted uh, to Palestine in in 1946. Wow. And when he was in Palestine, uh, his job, one of his jobs, was boarding uh, Jewish refugee ships. So the uh, British called them illegals, and I think that that museum in Israel calls them clandestines. But boarding those ships, and 
I have his letters describing uh, boarding the San Demetrio, which I think um, was re renamed the um, Lateran. And, uh, you know, the, the uh, it's a very moving letter. He's only at age 21, and what he has to encounter there and the conflict and and you know being called a nazi and uh, you know then anyway it's you know uh, the tear gas and rounding everybody up putting them on a ship to cyprus and taking them to detention camps in cyprus so you know here is it, my father age 21 going through this uh, profound experience uh all because uh 30 years earlier well 29 years earlier Balfour had uh, penned that letter to Lord Rothschild. So that was sort of one, that was sort of one kind of observation about how, you know, this, the consequences of actions. Uh, the second observation I'd, I'd make is more sort of philosophical, which is that um, for, for peacemaking, I think, requires a very kind of long-term view, and that you know, there's going to be a lot of political pain felt today or tomorrow for gains which may well be felt a generation further down the line. And the, you know, the nature of democracies is that uh, sometimes um, they're not good at taking the long view. And I don't have a recipe. <laughs> Uh, for success here, it's just uh, maybe it would be an observation that sometimes it's, it, it might, it's almost easier to make peace between two dictators than it is between two democracies. Very interesting, yeah, we've certainly heard um, on previous Matsav podcasts and hosts the plethora of challenges, political challenges facing the two uh, sides themselves in this conflict. Yeah, and mostly how they're um, affected by internal um, considerations, often more than they are actually thinking of, of the consequences to the people. Um, I mean, at, at the end of the day, politicians want to stay in power, and they want to stay legitimate as much as possible. Um, and that often contradicts necessarily making the best choices for the people. Um, yes, I mean, it's also, it's, uh, if you actually think about, and I think some of um, the work I read of yours, Noah, you know, it, it, that, that uh, about the, um, you know, the second Camp David in 2000 and onwards from there, you know, you get the impression that, that um, uh, you have to have in alignment all at the same time politicians who are in politically strong enough positions uh, in both camps that they could actually persuade uh, the center ground in in each in each camp to sort of move towards each other and endorse what would be a painful set of compromises and that the likelihood of getting those two strong leaders who are ready and willing to make compromises in in power at the same time is you know just it, you know we've got near it at some points you know where and we've had leaders on one side who've been willing to make compromises but never never on both sides at the same time that's often where folks point to the role of international actors which uh, i suppose underscores the importance of uh, our work, our joint work 
analyzing the, the pivotal moment in this conflict, one of the pivotal moments yeah. coming from 1917. Uh, can, I, can I ask um, uh, you guys a question? Yes, of course. Which, yeah, is that, I mean, uh, I, I, note, you know, I noticed that um, you, you are focused on what in, international actors can do. Uh, how, how sort of phlegmatic, how confident are you that international actors can make, are more likely to play a, play a positive rather than a negative role? Um, I, I can give you, obviously, my personal um, thoughts on this issue. I think it's mostly by incentivizing um, the actors that are part of the conflict to make concessions towards the other actor. I think it rarely um, derives from punishments or negative um, incentives, but usually if you can offer something that's better than the status quo, that's when people start shifting. It is interesting because we, you know, we've seen some economic, you know, this idea that somehow if we, okay, if we, if we say you'll be better off if you do this thing, and uh, you, uh, the EU or America will underwrite this, uh, but then we've seen some a couple of elections, uh, Brexit and, and maybe Trump, where actually uh, people have been voting not necessarily in their own economic interest, but for other for other issues, for other ideas. And I'm just sort of wondering whether or not that... Uh, and I'm kind of looking at Northern Ireland, which is, which is unable to reform a, a power-sharing parliament and has, you know, it's been suspended now for, I think, three or four months. Uh, one of the things they can't agree on, it, which is going to be, is whether or not Irish should be reintroduced as an official language. You know, that's that's the kind of that's exactly the kind of uh, uh, you know um, sort of it's nothing to do with economics. That's obviously all to do with uh, kind of a culture war. And uh, maybe we've overemphasized uh, Noah just uh, you know the the power of the euro or the power of the dollar, and that in the end all it's all that's happened is that we've just kind of underwritten the stasis rather than paid people to make progress towards peace. I don't necessarily think it's economic, though, when I say incentives. It can also be, um, as you said, things that are more cultural. Um, but in a way, for two sides that are in conflict, once they have more to lose by being in the conflict than more than they have to gain, I think that's yeah. when things start to shift. Um, and, and it's limited, too. Um, there's yeah. a limit to how much um, an external actor can sway the sides left or right. Um, at the end of the yeah. day, it's going to have to come from the people within. But international actors, again, this is my personal view, I think they can play um, a positive role when they offer incentives. Not, again, not only by economic incentives, but also recognition, which plays a key factor also in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We've heard multiple um, perspectives on it, and obviously the prevailing narrative um, on the pro-Israel Jewish side is the importance of the recognition of Israel as a Jewish state. Um, but those who study the, the intricacies of past negotiations understand that that demand has never been a, as prevalent as it is now, meaning that it was a more of a fabricated 
uh, rhetorical device that it's shifted into today. This brings us back to the discussion about recognition. I mean, the Balfour Declaration, one of the reasons it's so controversial is because it's recognition it's considered as British recognition for the Jewish um, for the Jewish claim of statehood um, and that's also one of the reasons the Palestinians at the moment there's there's been a few petitions uh, to asking the British to take it back um, as if it never happened a hundred years ago um, which I found historically just to be kind of twisted I mean how can you take something back it's like I offended you and then I'm taking taking it back does it mean it never happened well, well or at least um, fulfill the uh, I mean it's an impossible it's an impossible demand because the Balfour Declaration is an impossible document you know it contains these inherent contradictions uh, it, interestingly Noah, in 1921 there is a big debate in the House of Lords uh, in the UK about whether or not the Balfour Declaration should be withdrawn. I mean, that, that's only that's only a few years afterwards, and uh, uh, the Earl of Balfour comes uh, to defend his document, but the majority of the House of Lords are pointing out that Britain has, has signed a bit of a check here, which it may not be able to deliver. You know, it might, it's a check that might bounce because uh, there are these conflicting promises and was, and was it fair? And uh, it, it's sort of depre- interesting but depressing to read the transcripts of that debate because we're still having that debate, uh, you know, um, 95 or something years, years later. So... Um, yeah, I, I, I think the, um, uh, I, I mentioned one other thing just in terms of this recognition thing. The, uh, when my father, I mentioned my father, when he boarded this uh, Jewish refugee ship, um, he picked up, he saw a young man dropping some paper and he picked up um, a kind of fake passport that had been issued in, it was Marseille or somewhere. And uh, uh, it's a fake passport which is saying why this chap, uh, uh, Shlomo uh, Weingold is his name, and he's from Houghton in Bessarabia. And why, uh, born in uh, 1926, the same year as my father, and it's saying why he has authority to enter Israel. And uh, it, it, it picks um, uh, three things out uh, two verses from the, uh, from the Old Testament, uh, and then uh, it quotes Lord Balfour. So you are absolutely right. You know, it was seized upon at the earliest opportunity, uh, uh, you know, to create a right of entry. Maybe not a Jewish state, because it's only ever, prom- you know, he, he sort of, he's, the words he uses are a national home. He never talks about a Jewish state. But it's certainly used as authority to justify, um, you know, unlimited entry uh, uh, to, 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 into Palestine. Thank you, Michael. This was really interesting, and I look forward to seeing the, the competition and see the videos that were sent. Right, okay. Well, uh, it was very nice, uh, now, and Adam, very nice to talk to you both, and uh, I do enjoy the podcasts, so keep up the good work. Thank you, Michael, and of course, thank you to all of our listeners who joined us for this. We invite you to engage with IPF on social media, on our Twitter and Facebook, and to join us next week. Okay.